0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air, online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films, every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Well, without further ado, I think it's, uh, it's time to bring in our first guest, and that would be Dr. Roxanne Varsi, Dr. Varsi is a uh, professor of visual anthropology here at the University of California, Irvine, uh, and she is the, a filmmaker as well. She is uh, the film that we're going to be talking about is called "Plastic Flowers Never Die." It's a story of her going back to uh, her homeland at Veron and how uh, the uh, the war going back to around 1979, 1980, well, it was around 1980, 81. Well, let me ask her, let me, without further ado, let's bring on, uh, Dr. Roxanne Varsi, director of the film, Plastic Flowers Never Die. Roxanne, welcome to Film School.
1: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, I, uh, well, when was the war, Iran-Iraq war? It was it about 1982, 83? Is <laughs> uh, was, was that right? Does that sound right?
1: Yeah, 82, about um, yeah. 90, so almost a decade.
0: Almost a decade. And here in the United States, I think we have virtually no institutional memory, and very few people actually remember this war. It was a devastating war between Iraq and Iran. Well, tell us about, a little bit about, about yourself. You're a professor of visual anthropology here at, at the University of California, Irvine. Um, how long have you been a professor here at uh, UCI?
1: I have been here since 2005, so I guess 14 years. 14. 14 <laughs> and I, I moved here from the East Coast, and I've been here ever since. <laughs> okay.
0: And your, your, your interest in filmmaking, when, when did that sort of develop for you?
1: Oh, um, I think I always sort of wanted to be a filmmaker. My son is nine now, and he runs around with an iPhone and an iPad and whatever he can get his hands on, and he tries to make films. I didn't really have that opportunity as a child because none of that technology existed. But I was always sort of writing stories and um, thinking visually. But it wasn't really until graduate school, right before graduate school, that I realized that I really wanted to pick up a camera and do something more with it in a in a narrative form. I was always a writer, um, yeah. but I always sort of thought visually, so it was yeah. a natural progression.
0: Right. You're right. It, yes. And I wanted to let people know, in addition to this documentary, Plastic Flowers Never Die, you've also done another short documentary called uh, Tarantourist, and and also as an author you are one of your I believe your last book last the last scene underground uh, is a yeah. book so if people are interested they where can they find out about about your work or about you as a author and as a filmmaker
1: um, i have a website that i think is still functional <laughs> called mm-hmm. roxambarsy.com okay. you can also look at my faculty profile at uci Uh, My first book came out with Duke University Press, and it's about um, basically post-Revolution popular culture and and youth and the war and basically everything that, you know, went into making an Islamic Republic culturally. Mm -hmm. And um, it's out with Duke University Press. It came out in 2006. And my second book was written as a novel about underground theater. And that came out with Stanford University Press, and both are available online at either Press or Amazon. Now, usual, usual underground places,
0: underground theater has to do with Iran, right? The uh, The yeah. underground mm-hmm. culture there. Well, let's talk about uh, Plastic uh, Flowers Never Die. What sort of, what went into sort of the, the, your mindset in terms <clears throat> of creating this documentary? You went back. Uh, to Iran right. to visit. Did you know? Uh, yeah. did, did you know going in that you wanted to to going back that you wanted to do a documentary, or was this something that kind of came upon you organically? What? what yeah. So of...
1: I I went back to do field work. So as anthropologists, anthropologist, when we're getting our Ph.D., I did my Ph.D. at Columbia. Which is a private university. We have sanctions on Iran, so it was really difficult to get funding at the time. I was lucky. I ended up getting a Fulbright fellowship. It was one of the first. It was the first Fulbright after the revolution, and one of the last ones that they would give. I think it continued for a couple of years, and then um, we stopped doing Fulbrights to Iran. So when I went back, I um, applied through all the, the, the regular channels where I needed permission to have one component of my research be documentary filmmaking. I didn't storyboard it as anthropologists. We never really know what we're going to get when we go into the field. I'm sure it's the same for uh, you know many documentary filmmakers, but I went in with an idea of what I was interested in which was youth culture and war but I didn't go in you know with with an idea of who I was going to interview or, or, or what the film was going to look like and it went through so many iterations over the ten years that I made it um, you know that it got to the point where it felt like I was really engaging an archive that I had collected ten years earlier and it became sort of more experimental and, and dreamy <laughs> as, as time went on mm-hmm. I I tried to do the traditional talking heads. Here, here's you know a history of the war, point A to point B to point C, and it just didn't ring true. Um, it didn't have the the sort of tonal effect to use one of Eisenstein's, mm-hmm. you know, um, it didn't it didn't have the effect that I felt when I was there. And I also, as an anthropologist, I really find it difficult to talk about how our own subjectivity gets in the way of our research. So I decided in the end that it really needed to be a personal meditation rather than this sort of, you know, traditional talking head documentary. And so that's what it became. It became this meditation on having missed the war as an Iranian, a meditation on what it means to go back as an Iranian and try to engage in post-war Iran when you've missed a major part of its history.
0: Let, yeah. let, let's talk about that because the, I, I I was going to throw out some numbers, but I wanted to make sure uh, that they're correct in terms of— the, Oh, I'm terrible the, at numbers. Well the, <laughs> well, the devastation in terms of how many people died over the course of this— De- almost decade-long war between Iraq and Iran. Again, I think it's important to to, uh, to really underscore this. This is a, a war, a devastating war, a war in which close to, if not more than a million people. Is that yes. is that fair to say? Uh, that
1: is fair. You know, numbers are extremely political, and those numbers over the course of, you know, almost two decades that have been working on this have changed um, depending on who's collecting the data. But I, I would say that the numbers are up there. Um, 800,000 know, to it, a
0: million people. Yeah, just definitely.
1: Say. On so, both sides. It was devastating for both sides. And, you know, the, the U.S. funded and helped both sides at different times to kind of keep the war going. Right.
0: Um, right. So and, it and, was... And, oh, I just wanted to inject here that Henry Kissinger, when asked about the war, famously or infamously said, uh, we hope that they... they that Neither side wins. Essentially, they didn't kill each other off. (laughs) Yeah, he he, he was more concerned exactly about the the body count than he was about any sort of resolution to the war. At least that's what he indicated in at least one statement about the war. So go ahead, please.
1: Yeah, Madeleine Albright finally sort of apologized, if if you can call it that, um, much later. But yeah, there was definitely, you know, outside involvement, which I think a lot of people are still unaware of. You know, um, there was the... The, you know, the Nicaraguan arms deal, um, a lot of stuff played into the geopolitics of the war that we're not really aware of. So we think of it as this thing that happened far away from us, us you know, being Americans, but we, we had a role in it, which, um, you know, as an Iranian American is interesting and and devastating and, you know, um, But that's the, the, the film doesn't get into that so much It no. gets more into sort of the, the remainder of the war on the ground And it's kind of interesting that it took 10 years to make because I also Teach anthropology of war And I teach film And I noticed that a lot of War cinemas that, that come about Tend to take about 10 years for filmmakers To start actually processing And making films a, a, about a war that's happened at home,
0: mm-hmm. what I really appreciate about the film is it is a very personal account on on your part you 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 narrate your you're, you're talking about your experience being in Iran and talking to the different people that you come upon in in this uh, uh, journey that you have and you touch upon something that is particularly important in terms of the war and the sort of the way that the Iranian people processed it, but martyrdom and sort of in weaving into this sort of religious theme of the defense of Iran, but martyrdom, which I, I really was fascinated by that part of the film. And also one other quick uh, observation, the people that you got to talk about the film, any of number of different people to talk about the war were very clear eyed about what it was and, and what it was about and how it came about and how it has lasted as an influence in Iranian society. So you get some really salient people to talk about mm-hmm. this situation. So let's talk about martyrdom and how it factored into what happened in the war between Iran and Iraq.
1: Oh, it's, it's incredibly complicated, but I think, you know, it's— any any kind of um, war needs a really strong master narrative or a discourse that's going to pull people in. so we're we're seeing that now in our own politics. There's a very strong us versus them. Um, there has to be something that gets set up in that way in order to get people um, excited or angry, um, you know, to get sort of a psychological hook into people to, to, to want to, you know, sacrifice themselves. Because whether you call it martyrdom or you, you, you call it defense or whatever you want to call it, when you go to war, there's a strong possibility that you're going to die, right? Yeah. Um, no matter what your religious background, that's, that's just a fact of war. So when you put it into a, a discourse of, of martyrdom, it, it makes it a lot more um, acceptable. It makes it a lot easier to enter into, if you think that you're not necessarily dying, but that you're going on to a new life, um, a better a real, life, a better life, yeah, a better life. It's it's paradise, you know. When you're martyred, you you move directly in, into paradise. So that's a very compelling, um, it's a very compelling reason, you know, to 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 put yourself on the line. Um,
0: yeah, and it, it, it again, it's such a strong uh, thread in the film. Um, it, it, and by the way i want to let people know that if they want to see plastic flowers never die there's a way that uh on canopy which i just found out about thanks to uh dr varcia <laughs> that uh, is a wonderful film service that i i am want to preach from the rooftops as to how <laughs> how easy it is if you have a library card literally I know in Newport Beach here, I have a library yep. card. And I assume all over the country, if you have a library card, you can go. It's a it's a streaming service called Canopy, K-A-N-O-P-Y. And there are some amazing films. Some of the best films you would ever want to watch are on that platform. So uh, I strongly recommend you check out K-A-N-O-P-Y, Canopy. If you've got a library card, you've got access to some amazing films, mm-hmm. including Plastic and Flowers I- Never Die. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I was just going to give a shout-out to my distributor as well, Documentary Educational Resources. They just turned 50 this year. They've been doing 50 years of anthropological films, and um, they do a great job of making sure that films get on on platforms like Canopy, and also Alexander Street Press is another one that feeds into Canopy. So if you don't have Canopy at your library, look for Alexander Street Press.
0: Oh, very good, very good. Well, I, I unfortunately the time has just flown by here. I apologize. <laughs> I thought we were gonna. It, it feels like it feels like we barely a lot scratched. it. get into. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Well, I the again the film is "Plastic Flowers Never Die," and it is a very personal film. Your young son is with you during part of the uh, the documentary. Your husband is there, but it's about going home and it's about sort of. Uh, it just, I felt a very personal feel about the people of Iran. And, and the impact that this incredibly devastating trauma has had on them to this day. You're walking through the, the, the graveyard that, you, that we see in the film. It's a, it's a very immediate reaction to, to seeing the faces, literally the faces, of the people that are entombed there. Uh, it's a, a powerful, powerful document, and uh, I want to thank, thank you Yeah, very much. And I want to thank you uh, so much for, for finding time to be here with us here on Film School.
1: Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: You're very welcome. Again, we've been speaking with uh, Professor Dr. Roxanne Varcy about her film, Plastic Flowers Never Die. Thank you, Roxanne, for being here. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films.